Okay then, let's just bow our hearts before the throne of God as we come to his word this morning. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and powerful. And Father, we thank you too for the freedom we have that we can meet as we do this day to study your word together. Father, we pray that as we look at these prophets, we be encouraged by their lives. Father, their faithfulness to you, their obedience. Lord, may that be a, a witness, an example to us. Father, too, as we look at the things they spoke, Lord, not just to their own generation, but down through the corridors of time, Lord, into the days in which we live. Lord, help us to see your incredible control over all of history, the way that, Lord, you have told the end from the beginning. And Father, we also pray that we would see through their teaching, their example, um, Father, the way that we should live our lives, Lord, in the midst of a, a crooked and perverse generation. Lord, just as Israel were so far removed from the ideal, Lord, the, the standard that you had set for them. Lord, we see our own nation moving so far away. And Father, we pray that we would shine, Lord, as lights in the midst of this nation in which we live. So, Father, help us to learn these lessons as we study your word today, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've come as far as the end of now the Old Testament in our journey through the Bible. And uh, we're looking at the last of the minor prophets this morning. So Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now, this tag, the minor prophets, uh, nothing to do with the quality of their writings, simply the quantity. Uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, etc., um, have much longer books, but these minor prophets, 12 of them, that make up the end of the Old Testament, uh, obviously less in terms of quantity, but very much uh, there in terms of quality. Uh, and we'll see uh, how how much they impact, not just the days they lived in, but they speak very much into the days uh, that we live in right now. Uh, such uh, an important part of Scripture for us to understand uh, the writings of these prophets. Now, they cover a span of history from around about 850 BC up to somewhere in the region of 450 BC. So we start with the likes of Joel, and then we have Jonah coming onto the scene and others, all the way down to Malachi, who we'll conclude with this morning in a short while. So as we review just briefly, um, we've looked already at the, the fact that the kingdom of Israel divided just after Solomon. We have Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who takes the southern kingdom, the line of David, um, but God, because of uh, Solomon's disobedience and because of the way things were going in the nation, he causes Israel to be separated. So we have the northern kingdoms, these ten tribes that make up what is referred to as Israel. Uh, this individual, Jeroboam, who's promised blessing himself if he obeys, which he doesn't, um, but he ends up becoming the, the king of the northern kingdom and leads the nation into idolatry. And so we have these two parts, and God sends his prophets to speak to both respective parts of the nations. Uh, now in 722 BC, the northern kingdom finally goes into captivity, as had been prophesied. And then we get down to uh, 606 BC, the first siege of Jerusalem. And that's when uh, the southern kingdom also uh, is taken captive and uh, taken carried away to Babylon. Um, in 587 BC, we then find that the final uh, uh, destruction of Jerusalem and the, the leading away of the remnant into captivity uh, at the final siege in, say, 587 BC. Now, if we look at the just a quick review of the prophets that we've been going through already, um, Hosea is called to speak to the, the northern kingdom. Um, he's the loving prophet. We've said already very much the Jeremiah of the north. And he calls Israel to repentance, to return to God. 
Joel, uh, the first of the written prophets. It's interesting because we have uh, this incredible record, just a three-chapter book, uh, the book of Joel. Um, but his prophet uh, prophecies span the whole of history, uh, going from that time, looking forward to the day of the Lord, this period of time uh, very much analogous with the tribulation that the New Testament uh, deals with, and Jesus speaks about in Matthew 24 and so on. And so Joel's speaking of that time. Um, but just this, uh, what Joel gives us uh, is just amplified by the other prophets. It's not really, in a sense, added to. Uh, it's just a greater clarity we get as the other prophets speak as well. Amos, uh, speaking also to the north, well, he was the shepherd prophet. Uh, just this individual, this ordinary person, a regular day job that God calls into ministry just for this short period of time to speak to the northern kingdom of the judgment that God was bringing on the nations. We looked already how interesting it was that we have their prophecies about the judgment on Gaza. And of course, in the current situation with the current conflict in Israel, uh, how interesting uh, that section certainly worth rereading chapter one of Amos. But Amos goes on to talk about the judgment on Israel that God will bring uh, and has obviously brought judgment on the nation. Um, the worst is yet to come for Israel, according to God's word, the time that Jeremiah speaks of as the day of Jacob's trouble. Obadiah speaks of the judgment on Edom, uh, Edom being the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. And uh, so Esau and Jacob, we have the lineage coming down uh, from Esau and uh, become the Edomites. Now, they typically were very cruel to their brothers uh, through history, right up until the time of the Babylonian captivity. And as a result, God speaks through Obadiah of the judgment that would come upon them. Well, Jonah, we've seen already, God uses him to speak to these Gentiles. And it's interesting because we see this mercy um, for these repentant Gentiles declared to them by one who'd risen. And Jonah, very much a type of Christ. And Jesus himself um, points to Jonah as a model, in a sense, an anticipatory model in advance of Jesus' own death and resurrection, the three days and the three nights. Micah, his message is very much about the Lord coming to rule and to reign. Uh, we quote from Micah every year uh, as part of our uh, typical traditional Christmas celebrations. Um, but there's a lot more to Micah than just uh, the verse that we quote at Christmas time. Nahum, uh, he was a, a prophet that spoke of the destruction and final judgment on Nineveh. So Jonah, about a hundred years prior to that, had preached to them, they'd repented, but then they'd moved away. They've not retained their, their faithfulness and obedience to God's call. Uh, they've gone back. And uh, so God speaks through Nahum uh, to bring judgment on Nineveh. Habakkuk, uh, well, one of the most famous verses uh, in Scripture in many respects, the just shall live by faith. Um, and, of course, it's the verse that really is the touchstone of the Reformation, as Martin Luther realizes that our uh, relationship with God is not based upon our works, what we can do. It's purely based upon him, our faith in his completed work, in the completed work of Jesus Christ. So it becomes, of course, um, part of a trilogy in the New Testament. We have three books um, uh, Romans, Galatians and Hebrews um, that speak uh, or that quote this verse from the book of Habakkuk uh, we have uh, also speaking to the, the southern kingdom Zephaniah, uh, last of the pre-exile prophets and he's speaking of the judgment to come and we'll be looking in a short while at Zephaniah uh, this morning and then we're going to go on and look at the three post-exile prophets and so now after the captivity in Babylon when they're back in the land we have Haggai Zechariah and Malachi and they're the ones that we're going to be studying as we carry on this morning so let's make a start let's jump straight in 
with the book of Zephaniah. Now, you may not have studied, looked at, read Zephaniah before. It's not one of those books that naturally springs to mind. Um, but it's an incredible book. Uh, all these books, there's so much depth there as we start to allow the Lord to teach us through them. Now, Zephaniah written during the reign of Josiah, so somewhere around about 640 um, to 609, probably the latter end of that period, so just before the first siege of uh, Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, the last of the pre-exile prophets, so he's really bringing a final message before the judgment comes uh, on Israel. His name means Jehovah Hides. Now that's very interesting because of a verse that we'll look at in a short while uh, that Zephaniah gives us. Um, the idea is that in, in his name that God is the one who protects or treasures. Well, we find there's 17 I will statements uh, from God throughout this book of Zephaniah. So God is stating his position. I will do this and, and so on. Uh, the key phrase, of course, uh, very much similar to a lot of these minor prophets, is speaking of the day of the Lord. So not only was Zephaniah speaking of the days in which he lived and the judgment that was about to come on the nation of Israel, but also speaking down to the days in which we live, where we're about to see the day of the Lord began. The day of the Lord, again, that time when God will bring that judgment on the earth for the iniquity. Isaiah makes it very clear that there is this day coming, the day of the Lord, when God will finally uh, address uh, the iniquity, the evil of mankind. And uh, lots in the New Testament about that. Lots of the prophets speak about this. So that phrase, the day of the Lord, very key to, to make note of. Seven times that occurs in his book. And so we see that Zephaniah's prophecies span history, uh, speaking to the current situation in Israel, but also um, speaking into the our days as well with this incredible clarity. Well, Zephaniah was the great-grandson of King Hezekiah, um, which means he was a distant cousin of Josiah, who was the, the king that was uh, on the throne, really, when he was starting to speak. And it's interesting, he traces his genealogy back through four generations to King Hezekiah. And we see that in chapter 1. Now, why does he give us that detail? Well, probably to demonstrate his right to speak um, and the fact that he understood the corruption that was going on within the monarchy, within the, the kingdom, looking at these kings. Uh, he prophesies um, at the start of the, his kind of uh, ministry, in a sense, uh, would have been around about the time of um, uh, Josiah, as I said, um, but if you trace that back, Hezekiah would have been his great great grand or great grandfather. Um, so he was a great grandson of Hezekiah, um, and Josiah uh, at the end where he would have been um, were both godly kings. But in the middle of that, we have about fifty years of rule by Ammon and then Manasseh. Manasseh being a wicked and evil king, the worst in uh, Judah's history. Well, if we have a look at uh, the, the overview of the book, in chapter 1, uh, we've got a judgment on Judah that's foretold. Chapter 2 then switches and the focus becomes the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are warned that judgment will come upon them because of their iniquity, because of the way they have treated Israel, interestingly enough. Well, God um, specifically um, promises judgment on the nations. And in Matthew 25, we have a portion that's often misunderstood, the sheep and the goats. Now, this is quite interesting because a lot of people think this is referring to the church and so on. But it's referring, in fact, the whole section, Matthew 24, 25, Israel are the key focus there. Uh, and this judgment that Jesus speaks of, uh, with the sheep and the goats being divided on the left and the right, is in regard to how the nations have treated Jesus' brethren. That's referring to Israel, because Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was born as a Jew. He's destined to be the king of the Jews. 
when Gabriel uh, spoke to Mary and promised that she was going to be the one to bear the Messiah. Um, he explained to her that this one who would be in her womb would be the one to sit on the throne of David and rule over the whole house of Israel. So we see the very Jewishness in all of these things. Um, the interesting thing, of course, particularly again in the days in which we live, is the way the nations are in regard to Israel. Now, Israel. We look at the Middle East. We look at the situation going on at the moment. Now, some of you may have heard um, recently, it was a week or so ago, um, George Galloway, um, made these uh, incredible comments about Bradford, where is the area where he's uh, uh, he's based MP-wise. Uh, he was speaking very much against Israel. Let me just, just read this to you. This is, uh, this is just from a news uh, report. It says, George Galloway has suggested the UK city of Bradford should be an Israel-free zone and has called for the district to issue a blanket boycott of Israeli goods, services, academics and tourists. Speaking on behalf of the Respect Party in Leeds, the MP for Bradford West encouraged a crowd gathered at a public meeting to back his stance and do the same thing. That's just an incredible statement. If any individual would have come out and spoken about another people group, as Galloway's done, they'd have been arrested. It'd have been absolutely horrific. It's racism in the worst possible way. Now, of course, when it's Israel, everybody sits back and they allow these comments to go on. Incredible. But we've got to understand that there is a, a, a satanic motive behind this. We've seen already that Satan wants to see Israel destroyed. I Islam very much wants to see Israel wiped off the map. And uh, we've talked previously about the prophetic implications of that and why God will stand up for and fight for Israel. Now, interestingly, in the book of Zephaniah, as we're looking at, four times God refers to them as my people. He says he's the God of Israel. We find that the people of the Lord of hosts is a label that's given to Israel and the Lord their God. So in that, there's eight distinct references where God is owning Israel and saying that they are his, which is very interesting, again, because this judgment that will come upon the nations, as I said, will be because of the way the nations have treated Israel. But interestingly, there is a promise of escaping God's wrath that's given to us in this book. We'll look at that in just a moment. Uh, but chapter 3, to conclude our overview, is the national regathering and restoration of Israel. So just a quick summary again. Chapter 1, the judgment foretold on, on Judah. Chapter 2, the judgment on the Gentiles. And chapter 3, it deals with the regathering of the nation. And there we have references to Israel being, uh, or, or God being her God, as in Israel's God. The King of Israel is referenced, and the Lord thy God. So once again, these very Jewish uh, phrases in regard to God. <clears throat> now, chapter 1, the first seven verses, really the subheading could be, I will consume. God's wrath will consume his creation. Uh, the hypocrites in the land, uh, it's going to be a sacrificial feast prepared for Babylon, is what we're told in the text. The next uh, few verses from 8, verse 8 to verse 11, really God speaking of the punishment that he's going to bring. Starting at the royal palace, uh, we get this uh, picture of God walking through the city um, and invited the people to lament with him. And this is obviously for Zephaniah, uh, just faithfully being obedient to what God was calling him to. Uh, the merchants would be especially grieved because of their ill-gotten wealth, uh, which was going to be seized and so on. So they're very upset that they're going to lose everything, but... There was far more at stake than just wealth. We're talking about eternity here as well for these individuals who were rejecting God. 
Well, in the verse 12 to verse 13, there's a search uh, that's really implied here. The people of Jerusalem would try to hide, um, but the invading soldiers would search and find them out. And the complacent would soon discover that their theology was all wrong. Interesting, isn't it, how people have this understanding of God, how they think God is, and how they think God will fit their model. Well, people are in for a very rude awakening. Um, And then verse 14 to 18, God speaking of the distress that's going to be brought upon the land. And words we find there are bitter, trouble, devastation, darkness, alarm, and so on. You know, again, this is a prophetic book speaking about a a particular issue at that time, at this particular point in chapter 1. But it also speaks so clearly of the days in which we live and the way that this world also is going to be really very rudely awoken uh, and they'll realise their iniquity and their sin before a holy God. Well, chapter 2 speaks, as I said, about the judgment on the Gentiles and because of their sin, the nations around Judah were going to feel God's wrath. Um, The other prophets had warned them that judgment was coming and now Zephaniah really is uh, the last one to to highlight this but Gentiles of course didn't repent even at that point and so God would punish them uh, for their pride and their mistreatment of Israel and their worship of false gods but in God's mercy God still calls them to repent now we then see this Gentile remnant that are saved out of this And it's a lovely picture of the rapture of the days in which we live and that which we have to look forward to. Um, We see in Zephaniah chapter 2 verse 3, this great prophecy says, Seek you the Lord, all you meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be you shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. What an incredible promise. Because it's saying those who are meek, those who effectively are prepared to be humble before God, there's a possibility, there's a way of escape. Jesus in Luke's Gospel says to the disciples that pray that you be counted worthy to escape all of these things. And that's after speaking of the day of the Lord, of the judgment that's coming, and says there's a way of escaping. First Thessalonians deals with this whole issue of the rapture of the church, when the believers will be taken out of this world before the judgment comes. Numerous scriptures in the New Testament, as we go through later in the year through the New Testament, will highlight a number of those. And in the book of Revelation itself, it's made very clear that the church will be taken out of this world before judgment comes. But way back here in the Old Testament in Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3, we have this great promise that God will take a remnant of the Gentiles, some out of the, the sea of the Gentiles to be his. Well, chapter 3, the first seven verses there deal with the rebellious uh, nation of Israel, of course. The leaders in Jerusalem wouldn't listen uh, to God's servants, the prophets that had been sent. They didn't heed God's warnings. God had corrected them, but they only committed greater sins. And now the time has come for God to judge them. But then from verse 8 through 13, we find the restoration. The prophet looked ahead to the last days when Israel would be regathered and restored to their land. And they'd call on him and serve him and they wouldn't have anything to fear. And then finally, to round out uh, the book, we have the rejoicing as the people sing because their discipline is ended. Uh, the enemy has been defeated and the Lord is king over Israel. We also see that the Lord, we're told, will sing in verse 17 of chapter 3. Uh, like a loving father, he takes his fearful children in his arms and quiets them uh, with his love. It's a lovely picture. Uh, just reading in chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, it says, Therefore wait you upon me, says the Lord until the day that I rise up to the prey. 
For my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms, to pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger. For all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. For then will I turn to the people a pure language, that they may call, uh, they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. Now this is incredible, because verse 9 tells us that a pure language will be restored. The language it's referring to is Hebrew. Now, that up until 1948 wasn't a possibility, because they were scattered around the world, they were speaking whatever languages the nations that they were scattered amongst were speaking, and many linguistic experts have said that never would they resurrect the Hebrew language again. In fact, many ancient languages are just that, they're ancient languages, they're not used today. But any Jew today walking through Israel would be able to pick up a copy of the Torah or these prophets that we're reading now, and they'd be able to read it in the same Hebrew that they speak. God has restored to the Jewish nation this language that they had, this pure language. Uh, there's a lot of incredible uh, linguistic properties to uh, the Hebrew language. Uh, makes it very, very interesting. Chuck Misler um, highlights uh, in some of his work how incredible the language is, and it's the best language in the world with which to encrypt and to um, hide codes and all sorts of things that we find God has done in the text. So uh, another study uh, for the diligent, if you want to go off on down that route. Um, Cosmic Codes is Chuck Misler's book where he highlights a number of these things, um, but certainly Hebrew, a very interesting language. Chapter 3, verse 20, we read this. At that time, again, so the time in which we live, from 1948 onwards, so at that time will I bring you again, even in the time that I gather you. For I will make you a name and a praise among all people of the earth when I turn back your captivity before your eyes, says the Lord. What a lovely promise of the regathering and restoration of the nation. Okay, let's look at the book of Haggai. Haggai, another one of these uh, wonderful prophets uh, that speaks to the nation. Just to set the scene, again, he's the first of these post-exile prophets that we're going to be reviewing this morning. Zechariah, uh, we'll see in a moment, and then Malachi, just to conclude that group off. Um, Haggai's name simply means my festival. Now, it's interesting because it really is, in a sense, a festival that Haggai is trying to uh, encourage and bring about in the nation. But it's a feast and a festival based upon their relationship with God, getting back to God and the joy of that celebration. He has incredibly just a really short prophetic career, just four months. But he has a profound impact on the nation. You know, just mindful of the book of Esther and the words that we read there for such a time as this. You know, you might not know what your mission, your vision, your calling is at the moment. But, you know, it could be this week. It could be in the the months ahead of us that God will use you in such a profound way. Haggai, just four months worth of ministry. And yet he's recorded in God's word that will last forever. And, you know, God may have a plan and a purpose and a mission and a calling for you that he'll reveal to you. It may simply be a conversation that the Lord would lead you into with another individual who may become saved as a result of your witness and your testimony. You know, we should never uh, despise the day of small beginnings, we're told in Scripture. And, of course, we shouldn't because we see the way that God uses even these simple things. But again, just four months is uh, is all Haggai has in terms of actual ministry time. But he comes onto the scene at the right time and in the right place. 
Now, Babylon, we've seen already, was a large uh, nation, but totally eclipsed geographically by the Persian Empire. Now, 539 BC is when the Persian Empire takes over from the Babylonian Empire. And the Persian Empire, the the king there that we're most uh, uh, concerned with to start with is Cyrus, this one that steps onto the world scene. And uh, we find that Cyrus in 537 BC signs a decree allowing the Jews to return home. That's recorded on this steel of Cyrus, as it's referred to, which is held up in the British Museum in London. Well, as a result of that decree, about 50,000 Jews returned home. The rest of them remained in Babylon. They were quite comfortable. They were quite happy there. Um, But 50,000 of them uh, obediently and faithfully returned home. But interestingly, nothing's done for the first two years. They get there. They don't touch the temple. They're just getting settled uh, seemingly during that time. We actually read in the book of Ezra, uh, verse 8 of chapter 3. Now in the second year of their coming unto the house of God at Jerusalem. So two years have passed. In the second year of their coming, in the second month began Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, um, and the remnant of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all they that were come out of the captivity unto Jerusalem and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. So for two years they're there, nothing happens, and then they set themselves about this task. But we then find... For the next five years, they go through a real period of trouble. And we read in Ezra chapter 4, uh, picking up verse 4, Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah, and troubled them in building, and hired counsellors against them, to frustrate their purpose all the days of the kings of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So the Samaritans that are in the land uh, don't want Israel, uh, these uh, the nation that's come back to its land, they don't want them to to build and to um, restore the former glories that they've known as a nation. And they, they thought the plans they have. And so we see all these things take place. And what happens is Cyrus's son, Cambyses, becomes king in 530 BC. And so the Samaritans seize the opportunity. They petition Cambyses regarding the Jews. They say, look, they're a rebellious people. And Cambyses agrees. And he calls a halt to the work, which we've just seen in Ezra 4, verse 21. And that lasts for another 12 years, which brings us to 518 BC. Now, the incredible thing is in all of this, God was still working. Remember we've looked at this period of time, this 70 years that God spoke of by the prophet Jeremiah, of the servitude of the nation. Now that begins in 606 BC, 70 years later, in 537 BC, that comes to an end and the people can go home. But there was a second period of 70 years, which was the desolations of Jerusalem. This was regarding the city. Now, We find that begins in 587 BC with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And then that's 70 years to the day takes us down to 518 BC. And so although they're back in the land, God doesn't allow them to work on the temple until it's his time, until this time of judgment that he decreed upon the land has come to an end. And we find a 19-year gap um, at the beginning of this period and also at the end. Interesting, the same 19-year gap that we find between 1948 and 1967. Uh, and that's no coincidence. We looked at that previously when we were studying this incredible prophecy that Ezekiel gives us, uh, which, which ties all these things together.
Okay, so let's pick up then uh, the book of Haggai, chapter 1, verse 1, to start with. And we read, in the second year of Darius the king. So this now is when Darius has uh, signed his decree that now we've got to the end of the desolations. In the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of uh, Jehozdeg, uh, the high priest, saying, now, just to comment before we go on, Zerubbabel means sown in Babylon, which is an interesting name. He was the grandson of Jehoiachin, of the royal line. Technically, he was the one who should have sat on the throne. But, of course, that doesn't happen because God had said that Israel would abide many days without a king. So there is no king up until we eventually will get to the Messiah who will sit on the throne of David. And Cyrus is the one who appoints Zerubbabel to be the governor of Judah. Joshua is also mentioned here, the son of Jehozdek, the high priest, uh, was at the time of the Babylonian invasion. And so now uh, we find that the the descendants of these people now are the ones that are carrying on, uh, but now they're back in the land. And so, thus speaks the Lord of hosts, verse 2, saying, This people say the time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. You see, the nation had become very much a, a victim of discouragement. They'd got back in the land. They'd wanted to rebuild the temple, but those plans had been thwarted. And so nothing's happened now for this period of time. And now God sends Haggai onto the scene at the right time to speak to the nation, saying, you know, more or less, what are you doing sitting there? And, of course, the challenge is that you're saying, the people are saying, no, it's not the time, you know, it's not appropriate, we need to wait, you know, and so on making excuses they were back in the land but they'd settled for something other than god's best and the enemy had intimidated them into submission i mean something we need to be so careful of we're told in proverbs that the fear of man brings a snare oh and it does indeed do just that you see man's word had prevailed over god's word uh, in this situation and israel were quite content just to be in the land and settle for what they had rather than go on to and experience all that God had for them. And so verse 3 carries on and says, Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O you, to dwell in your sealed or panelled houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. It's really this challenge to think about this situation. Set your heart, in a sense, on the way that you should go. Consider, think diligently. So God addressing the people, the idea of these panelled walls here is where this wood seemingly had been destined for the temple. That's why it had been originally acquired. And rather than using it for the temple, they started to use it in their own houses now. Uh, And God calling the the nation and saying, you know, what are you doing? My house is lying in ruins and all you're bothered about is building your own houses. God says to them, you've sown much, verse 6, and bring in little. You eat, but you've not enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earns wages, earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. Does that sound familiar? Well, it's actually kind of a phrase and a saying that gets used today. And so many of uh, the little phrases and the lines we use in conversation come from Scripture. Um, but this is another one. And what was happening is that their effort and energy was putting, being put into their own things rather than the things of God. 
and God challenging them to really again just consider to think about the way they were living and really we see then the consequence of this misappropriated resource uh, was the fact that they had this unexplained failure at least unexplained to them why was God allowing them to struggle why weren't they prospering why weren't they being filled why weren't they being satisfied well the simple answer is what we find in Matthew 7 that we should seek first the kingdom of God and then all these things will be added and you know so often what we do is we seek first our things and then when we've got everything of our house sorted and built and ready then we consider God's house well God says no 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 you do it the other way around you consider my house you do the things for the kingdom and I'll see to it that your house is okay and how many times in our own lives have we experienced those things you may be going through a situation even now God says, verse 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. This is a reverberating theme through the book. We've kind of heard that phrase often used, you know, what on earth are you doing for heaven's sake? But it's true, you know, what are you doing for heaven's sake? You know, are we just sowing to the flesh? Are we just putting our treasure on earth? Or are we doing things for the kingdom, for the Lord's house? What are we doing to build the Lord's house? This is a real challenge to us, this book of Haggai. Verse 13, we carry on. Then spoke Haggai the Lord's messenger in the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. What a great comfort and a promise. You see, what God was calling them to do was to step out in faith, to start building. But that might mean persecution was going to come from the Samaritans, those that had tried to stop them. This wasn't going to be just some breeze, let's just build something now. This was a real, you may find that you're threatened. You may find that people will laugh at you or ridicule you or mock you as you set out to try and build the things of God. But God says, I'm with you. What a great promise that the God who created all things says and gives us his promise. I am with you, says the Lord. Well, the Jews, of course, didn't know what would happen. But clearly, without God, they could be destroyed if they attempted this. But God was saying, you're not going to go alone. I'm going with you. It's a lovely promise. Okay. Verse 18 of chapter 2 then says, moving on, Consider now from this day and upward, from the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Why is this day so important? Why is Haggai told to record this day? Because this is the day that the desolation has ended. This was that moment that God had said. Interestingly, going back into the book of Ezekiel, he, Ezekiel's told as the, the armies of Babylon are surrounding Jerusalem. Ezekiel at this point is hundreds of miles away in Babylon. He's told to record the day. It was the 10th day of Tibet is the day that he's told to record. It was 587 BC. That's the day that this period of desolation starts. And God tells Haggai to record the day they end. And again, we can do the math, we work it out, and we have this period of uh, 25,200 days uh, is the exact number of days, 70 years of 360 days in length. Uh, once again, the Bible, when it's dealing with prophetic years, deals with years of 360 days. We've talked about that before. There's some very interesting and compelling reasons as to why that is. Um, just one little uh, thing, if you've never come across that before, we've got 360 degrees in a circle. And the strong conjecture is that once the Earth's orbit was on a 360-day orbit, it wasn't that the ancient cultures got it wrong. All ancient cultures' calendars were based upon that. So 
just an interesting side study to go for some time. But the Bible uses 360 days in regard to prophecy on a number of occasions, and it can be evidenced and demonstrated in numerous ways. So, so that's the book of Haggai. So let's now move on to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah, very much the revelation of the Old Testament, full of these incredible visions. And Gerard this morning was sharing with us, uh, looking at our verse for the week, um, the visions that uh, Zechariah records for us. Well, the book was written around about 518 BC. So this is at the same time, roughly, as Haggai. So Zechariah and Haggai would have been in Jerusalem at the same time. They both returned uh, from Babylon. Uh, Zechariah had certainly been there as a young man, as a captive. Um, and it was a contemporary not only of Haggai, but also of Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest. Um, Zechariah also was a Levite. Now, Haggai uh, preached four sermons in four months and then just disappears off the scene, as we mentioned. But two months after Haggai starts to preach, Zechariah also steps on the scene, very much given this kind of encouragement role. He begins his ministry um, seemingly to encourage the people in their work of rebuilding God's house and rebuilding the temple. Uh, And we see him encouraging the spiritual renewal, trying to help motivate them and so on, and talking about God's plans for Israel's future. Chuck Mithler says, This most challenging little book is second only to Isaiah in its distinctiveness and importance as a messianic prophet. Quite a statement in itself. Uh, Merrill F. Unger uh, makes this statement. The prophecy of Zechariah is profoundly precious to the Christian because of its unique messianic emphasis and its uh, panoramic unfolding of the events connected with the first and especially the second advent of Christ and the consequent millennial restoration of the nation Israel. So once again, just highlighting the messianic flavour of this book. And that's no idle comments, because as we look at it, we see that Zechariah is indeed an incredible book, full of references to the Messiah, the one who is coming. Um, as I said, it's often called the, the apocalypse of the Old Testament, or the revelation, in a sense, of the, of the Old Testament. And it presents the Messiah as the branch who will remove iniquity, as the stone it speaks of his throne of his temple it presents him as the coming king it speaks of him as the shepherd it records for us the triumphal entry as we know it when jesus would ride in jerusalem on on that donkey just as a king would come at a time of peace riding on a donkey well so jesus does and it's recorded in this book we find that Jesus' betrayal for 30 pieces of silver is recorded here and this is again get this over 400 years before the event his crucifixions mentioned, and the second coming, that moment when Israel, as we'll find recorded in this book, will look upon him whom they've pierced, looking upon Jesus, and they'll realise that Jesus is their Messiah. Like a number of the other books we've already mentioned, it focuses on the day of the Lord, this time of judgment that's going to come on the earth. And we see also the return of Israel in unbelief. They're passing through the great tribulation that is yet to come. The siege of Jerusalem by this confederated Gentile powers that will be brought together in the last days, and we're seeing that happen right now. Uh, The deliverance then by their king, by the Messiah, to come and step in at the last minute and rescue Israel. Zechariah also gives us the only interesting physical description of the Antichrist that we seem to find in Scripture, uh, speaking seemingly of a problem with his eye as well, it's recorded for us. And then chapter 14, very interesting because it records what seems to be the result of a nuclear uh, explosion, a nuclear bomb uh, going off 
and uh, we have the details given so it's quite gory details of the effects of people uh, as they're exposed to this kind of radiation so it would seem now once again Zechariah's day did he understand how this would play out possibly not but he faithfully records it and now in our days we can see how easily these things can be fulfilled and uh, they may be just around the corner from us so Zechariah is actually the largest of the minor prophets. He's got 14 chapters uh, of this book. Uh, he's quoted to or alluded to 71 times in the New Testament. So you kind of get an idea of how important this little book really is. Now, <clears throat> Zechariah was a member of the Great Synagogue, which was a council originated by Nehemiah, uh, composed of about 120 members. Uh, Ezra, it was believed, was the president of this council, um, and that council later gives way to the Sanhedrin, that Sanhedrin being that uh, group of 70 uh, Jewish leaders very much in force and in power during the time of Jesus and so on. Let's just jump into the text. So Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1, we read, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, now you should note that's exactly the same as Haggai is speaking, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of I do the prophet, saying, The Lord has been sore displeased with your fathers. Now, the second verse there, speaking of really the message of the book, we'll come back to that in just a second. But look at the names that we're given here. Zechariah means whom Yahweh remembers. But then we're told that he was a son of Berechiah. Well, Berechiah, or the son of Berechiah, means Yahweh blesses. And then we're told also, son of I do the prophet which is the appointed time, the, the translation we'd have. So we have in these three names, in chapter 1 of Zechariah, whom Yahweh remembers, Yahweh blesses at the appointed time. What a great summary of the entire book, just concealed for us there in these Hebrew names. Now, as I said, verse 2 speaks of the fact that God was displeased with their fathers. And if we look at it as an overview, really the first six verses of chapter 1, uh, it's really don't repeat the mistakes of the past. Paul says pretty much the same to us Christians in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, you know, learn from the mistakes of other people and learn from those things and don't repeat them. We then have these eight visions that are given to us. Um, starting with uh, in chapter 1 verse 7 the man uh, riding on a horse then the four horns the four craftsmen is given a man with a measuring line joshua the high priest uh, the golden lampstand and two olive trees and we could link some of these things to the things we see in revelation many think that uh, the two olive trees are representative of the two witnesses that are recorded in revelation 11 the flying scroll a woman in the basket now just a brief mention we did talk about this previously of the fact that this woman seems to represent the false religious system of the world she's placed in the middle of commerce and everything else but then lifted and taken back to her own base we're told her own place um which was in the plain of or on the plain of shinar now shinar is that area of iraq uh, today and typically babylon now, what it would appear this vision is showing us is this false religious system that started in Babylon in the final days will return to Babylon. Now, some think that that's just looking at it with kind of a mystical approach to it. Others believe it's a literal prophecy. Now, go back, say, 20, 30 years. Who would have thought that that would be possible, that we could get to a situation where Babylon in Iraq could become an international center of religion? Well, 
we're living in the days now. We're seeing what ISIS is doing. Uh, this Islamic Islamic group uh, in northern Iraq and the situation there. Of course. The uh, Islam and the Catholic Church have got a number of things in common. We've talked about this previously. And it's not now a far-fetched thing to suggest that Babylon, which was actually being be- being rebuilt by Saddam Hussein, uh, the actual city itself, that could once again become an international city. So it's no longer uh, a bit far-fetched and oh, I couldn't see that happening. It, it, all of a sudden, within a matter of days, we could find that some decision has been made and Babylon becomes an international religious centre for the world, drawing together all the religions in the world, uh, again, in preparation for uh, this time of tribulation and so on. So I'll leave that with you. That's in chapter 5, verses 5 through 11, that vision. And the final vision, then, is one of four chariots in chapter 6, the first eight verses. Joshua then is crowned as the high priest, uh, very much a messianic type in chapter 6. Um, but then the Jews from Bethel inquire about the fast. Now, if you don't know the background, this may be a bit strange. Let me just mention this. Whilst they'd been in captivity, the Jews had fasted in the fifth and the seventh month. And they asked the question, should we carry on? Should we continue doing this? Well, Zechariah doesn't give them a yes or a no. He challenges their motives. Why are you doing it in the first place? Is it just tradition? Or are you really doing it for God and for the things of God? And for the things of God. Well, we then get to two burdens, if you like, that Zechariah um, shares uh, with his audience as he writes his, uh, his book, this prophecy. The first oracle or first burden is from chapter 9 through chapter 11. And it really kind of emphasizes the Messiah's first advent. Looking forward as well, but we see the Gentile nations are going to be judged. Um, that's from chapter 9, the first eight verses. And then a real reference to the first coming of the Messiah to Zion. Then the disarmament and universal peace at the second coming of Christ. Return of the captives to Jerusalem from exile. The triumph of all Israel over Greece. Now, that seems almost a bit random. Why is that in the text? Well, you remember when we were looking at Antiochus Epiphanes in our study of Daniel. This individual who descended, in a sense, from Greece, from the the Greek empire that divided into four arms, four sections, uh, after the death of Alexander the Great. And one of those uh, um, arms, as it were, um, became very, very uh, antagonistic toward Israel. And this king, uh, Antiochus, um, becomes a real problem uh, to the nation of Israel uh, in 167. That leads to the Feast of Hanukkah and other things we've discussed previously. Uh, review the study on Daniel uh, for more on that. So, But Israel are told here in Zechariah, prior even to the event, bear in mind this is before those things happen, that Israel would triumph over Greece. It's incredible how many prophecies don't seem to make a lot of sense on the pre-side of them yeah, but on the post-side of them all of a sudden the clarity and the, the wisdom of God and God speaking sound through time uh, is really clearly seen well then we see the intervention of Jehovah to protect his people and the people exhorted to ask for rain from the Lord and not from idols it's a really good idea that I mean, and, and of course we would never be so foolish as to, to go and ask idols for things and yet isn't that what we often do you know, we ask idols um, rather than seeking God. Um, you know, we can apply that to our own lives probably in many ways. 
Well, the next burden uh, that we find really um, is this carrying on the same theme in chapter 9 uh, through 11. And in chapter 10, God will punish the leaders of Judah, raise up the Messiah and give victory to the people. Israel and Judah will be regathered and restored. The unfaithful rulers are going to be punished. The Messiah will be the true shepherd, but the Messiah will also be rejected by his people. And God will then deliver them and hand them over to the idle shepherd. That's a reference to Antichrist in chapter 11, uh, verse 15 through 17. Well, that then takes us to the second burden. So that first section we just looked at, the first burden, the second burden, then really emphasizing Messiah's second coming. Uh, Jerusalem, we're told, will be a burdensome stone. We'll look at that in just a moment uh, because it's so significant. But then we're told in chapter 12 that the Lord is going to destroy the enemies of Judah and the Jews will know that God is their strength. The victory of Judah over its enemies is then foretold and then national mourning because of their rejection of the Messiah. That's chapter 12, 10 through 14. Then provision is made for cleansing from sin. Idols and false prophets will be banished. The Messiah we're told, will be slain and Israel scattered. It's an incredible prophetic promise. Again, 400 years before these things, or in fact over that. And a remnant of the nation will return to the Lord. And then finally, Gentiles will gather against Jerusalem. Uh, the Lord himself, though, will intervene. There will be changes in weather and also in the, the light, uh, illumination. Uh, there will be river of living water that is spoken of in chapter 14, verse 8. And Christ will reign as the king. There will be geographical changes in the land, and that's also mentioned in the book of Revelation as well. Jerusalem will be inhabited and secure. Uh, there will be a plague and panic that's going to affect the Gentile foes. And the Gentile survivors will worship at Jerusalem. Um, or if they don't, then they'll be uh, under this uh, plague as, as a penalty. Uh, the merchants will not trade in the house of the Lord. So all of these things, prophetically speaking, are things that are yet to come. Uh, so incredible um, in terms of the things that we can see uh, starting to build and gain momentum on our horizon. Now, just jumping back to chapter 12, the first uh, few verses there, picking up verse 2, God says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling, unto all the people round about when they shall be in the siege both against judah and against jerusalem and in that day will i make jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people all that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it what an amazing prophecy again prior to 1948 who would have thought that jerusalem this little place uh, smaller than wales would be in a position where the nations of the world would concern themselves with what's happening. It would become a burden for all nations. And, you know, Israel doesn't have any real natural resources. Jerusalem itself is not a seaport, and yet it's become the centre of international news coverage. Every time we turn on the television, we're seeing the events and the things that are going on in Israel. God says that Jerusalem will be a cup of trembling to all the people that are round about. Now, that's clearly a reference to the Arab nations that are surrounding Israel. And it is. Jerusalem is a cup of trembling to them. And we're told in that day, Jerusalem will be a burdensome stone for all people. Well, you know, even our government is concerned about the things. We have, as I said earlier, MPs voicing their opinions about these things. Um, just an amazing prophecy that is given. Once again, we just see God's hand and uh, on time on history uh, on everything just complete control as it says in the, the book of isaiah chapter 46 that god tells the end from the beginning 
Well, just to conclude the book of Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 8, we read there, In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and he that is feeble among them that shall be as uh, David, and the house of David shall be as God, and the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And then we're told, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. It's a very sad moment, very uh, much of a lament uh, here that we find Zechariah giving us. As he speaks of this moment, as Israel suddenly realized the horror of what they've done in rejecting Jesus. But the good news for Israel is that by God's grace, those that repent will be restored to a right relationship and they'll recognize that Jesus is their Messiah. How much worse for those in this world who will one day realize that they have rejected Jesus, but it's too late because they've left this life and their opportunity to choose is gone. Okay, so in the last uh, few minutes, let's just review briefly the book of Malachi. Now, the book of Malachi, for me, was one of those books I've read it many times over the years, reading through the Bible each year. And I've kind of understood it. I've got bits of it. There's a few verses that stand out. And there's a bit particularly about tithing that everybody loves to quote. But overall, I hadn't really clicked with the book. It wasn't one that, you know, was very special. Up until preparing for this teaching, preparing to, to teach what we're looking at this morning, and I'm now in love with this book. This is an amazing book, and it has just been such a personal challenge, and I hope this morning as we just look at these things, you'll see why this book is so important to us in the days in which we're living in, because of the message that Malachi was bringing, or that God was bringing through Malachi. Now, Again, the third and last of our post-exile prophets, the last book in the Old Testament, written round about 470, 460 BC, uh, that kind of period of time. Malachi's name means my messenger, God's messenger, and that's exactly what he is. And it's interesting because Malachi was a member of this great synagogue, um, a Levite, we're told, as well, um, from a, a place, a town up in Zebulun. But through Malachi... God speaks one more time to the nation before their big day. Their big day when the Messiah would come. And we've seen the prophets that we've looked at already today. We've been looking at um, Zephaniah prophesying just before the exile. We've seen um, the Haggai and then we've seen Zechariah uh, speaking after their return about getting back to this right relationship, considering their ways, putting God first and so on. And it's almost as if they kind of concluded their message and they've gone on for a number of years and then suddenly God says, you know what, I'm going to send one more. I'm going to give them one last chance, one opportunity to get things right with me before their big day, before the Messiah comes. And we'll see how this applies also to us. You see, Israel had become apathetic. They'd entered into mixed marriages and this is something that we'll see Malachi speak about. They've been withholding that which should have been given over to the Lord. K. Arthur makes this comment. Over and over, the children of Israel saw that God stood by his word. Just as Solomon wrote in Proverbs, the hearts of the kings were in God's hands, and he could turn them wherever he wanted. Why then did the remnant of Israel 
think that they could live and worship in any way they wanted once they returned from their 70 years of exile and settled in Israel again. Incredible, really. And I, I love that comment that why do they think they could just do what they wanted, live and worship any way that they choose? You know, this is God that we're speaking of. We should be seeking him as to how we should worship him, how we should serve him. It's not just about what we think. The incredible thing is that Malachi, I believe, speaks very much to the church today. You see, God, just like Israel back in in those days, God has delivered the church out of their bondage, their captivity. You know, the Israelites were captive in Babylon. We were captive and held slavery to sin, and we've been delivered out of that uh, that, that captivity. But do we now think that we can just live as we please and worship in any way we please? It would seem that a lot of the church think that's the case. We see all sorts of these new, strange ways that we can worship God. You know, this uh, mission-shaped church is one of the, the branches. We have, of course, emerging church, and we have a number of other things going on. You know, messy church and all those kind of, you know, and it's just like, you know, it's okay to do what we want. You know, church should be cool, church should be fun. And no, no, actually, it should be the place where we come to worship our God in the way that he chooses, not in the way that we choose. And we really need to seek him and not just, you know, make it an entertainment center, which sadly so many churches have become. What about us, though? Have we become apathetic? Certainly Israel, we're guilty of that. And we'll look in a moment. Have we entered into mixed marriages with the things of this world? Initially, of course, we'll all go, well, no, 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 we're fine. But have we? What is it that we devote our time and energies and attentions to? How many things do we get involved in at the expense of things of God? How many times do we spend, you know, on Facebook or, you know, social networking or on some hobby reading a magazine or watching television or whatever else. It can be any one of a number of things. And how many times have those things prevented us from reading God's word or going away quietly on our own to pray? You know, have we entered into mixed marriages with things of this world, thinking that actually those things are kind of okay now? And, you know, have we withheld from God that which we should have given him? You know, it really harks back to the message of Haggai. You know, whose house are we building? Are we building our house or God's house? Well, maybe God is speaking to us one last time before our big day. Because we've got a big day coming when our groom is going to come and call his bride. And will his bride be ready? Are we going to be, as it says in the book of Ephesians, washed and cleansed and pure and spotless? I hope and pray we are, but the real challenge for us is that so often we allow the things of this world to take over. And just as God sent Malachi to speak to the nation of Israel to prepare them for their big day, well, I believe that God has allowed us, the book of Malachi, to prepare us for our big day. The key phrase in the book is the Lord of hosts. 24 times that occurs. That's, that's a big number we need to take note of. 24 times in this four-chapter book, we find the phrase, the Lord of hosts. That's who we're dealing with. This is the God that we serve. It's the Lord of hosts. And, you know, we have our own understandings of God. We have our pictures of God. But when we read through scripture, we get glimpses in books like Ezekiel, in Revelation and elsewhere, of this incredible being who's created all things, who has these amazing creatures surrounding the throne, They're the hosts that it's referring to, the angelic hosts. 
that without number we couldn't even begin to, to count them. Well, it's the Lord of all of those hosts whom we are serving. He's the one that's calling us and giving us uh, this opportunity. The key phrase is, you say. So those two phrases, a lot of hosts, God's uh, showing he's the one that's, uh, uh, that we're addressing and should be addressed here. Um, the other key phrase is, you say. Twelve times that occurs in the book, and we'll see how that plays out. Because the first one we find in, in chapter 1, verse 2 is, you say, how have you loved us? Now, Israel saw how God had dealt with Edom, and really Israel were questioning God's goodness. They're saying, well, we've had problems, we've seen the way you've dealt with other nations, and we haven't got any you know, better or preferential treatment, and so on. So they're really just questioning God. Verse 6, they say, you, uh, God said to them, you say, how have we despised your name? God was saying, you have despised my name. And Israel were questioning it, saying, well, how have we? You know, and, well... They'd not shown due respect to the name of the Lord of hosts. What about us? Do we show due respect to his name? You know, and it's easy to hear people taking the Lord's name in vain and just think, oh, well, you know, I won't say anything. But what if somebody were to speak, you know, ill or, or disrespectfully of one of your parents? You know, would you say something? If somebody spoke about your mum in a way that was really uh, quite uh, derogatory, wouldn't you comment? But when it's God's name, why don't we comment? Why is it that we just remain silent sometimes? You know, do we really respect God's name and treat it with the reverence due? Another question that was put to them is, God says, you say, how have we defiled you? So you're saying to Israel, you're asking the question, well, God, how have we defiled you? And the answer is quite simply that they'd offered offerings that were defiled things that didn't cost them they were offering the sheep with the, the sheep with a blemish for example the lame sheep that didn't cost them anything they didn't really want it anyway and so they're offering these things to god and it was just totally a defilement of the whole process of this sacrifice the things they should have been giving and then they asked the question how is giving the best to god a good thing well then because others had abused this offering to god they declared it was all just a farce anyway, so what's the point of trying? Why is, you know, why is it worth us giving things to God? They've seen other people you know, uh, make a mockery. We see that today. You know, we look at Christian television sometimes. We see these people that uh, talk about tithing or giving to God, and they have their miracle wallets. And, you know, of course, they'll tell you to buy their miracle wallets for $10. What never seems to be addressed is the fact that if they've got a miracle wallet, why don't they just use that to fund what they need to do rather than get your money? And Anyway, so, uh, you know, they'll, they'll have bottles of uh, water from the River Jordan, which is perfectly crystal clear. And I, I've been there, I've seen the Jordan, it's not quite that clear. You know, but there are all these things, and of course we recognise these things are just a farce, but sometimes that overflows and we actually then sometimes maybe choose not to give or to tithe or to seek God in a particular way because we see other people abuse it, so we just dismiss everything as a result. Well, another thing in verse 13 is this, this God says, you say, how tiresome, there's no gain in it. <laughs> well, you see, they were rejecting holiness because some had profaned it. You know, the question for us is, do we see holiness as something to mock at? Or is it something to give all we have for? People talk about holy and they, they, this idea of holier than thou. We see it as you know something that maybe somebody's very pious is holy. But we do, do we see holiness as something we really, really want? 
Is it something that our heart yearns for, to be holy? Or do we see it as just a, a funny churchy thing? Well, you know, why do we see it that way? Surely being holy, separated for God, should be the goal of every believer. Israel were asking why they don't experience God's blessing. Well, quite simply, they were living a casual life. You know, and then they wept and groaned when the blessings didn't come. What about us? You know, <laughs> I remember some years ago I had the opportunity at Calvary Portsmouth. This was before I came down as pastor. This was when Ron was still here, but he was away for a few weeks. And I taught a series looking at the blessed life, just going from the book of Psalms, saying that God has promised us a number of ways in which we can be blessed in our life. These are promises. This isn't a, you know, you might get it. God says very clearly, if you do this, you'll be blessed, such as, Blessed are the undefiled in the way. What a lovely promise. If we're undefiled, God says there's blessing. And there's a number of other blessings that we read about, uh, particularly in the book of Psalms. And so God promises blessings if we're obedient. You know, if we walk according to his word, his law. But if we don't walk that way, and we don't get blessings, do we blame God for it? Chapter 2, verse 17. How... Have we wearied God? The Jews were asking. Well, once again, their profession at the altar had been forgotten before they'd gotten to the door. Just like us so often. You know, they were saying something with their lips, but they weren't living out in their lives. And how many times do we have a, a time of worship, a time of praise? And I, maybe you're not guilty of this, but I certainly am. That I could be there worshipping sometimes close to tears. Yeah, and I'm, I'm praying in my heart, you know, we sing, you know, I surrender all. And yet, Monday morning comes, and then back into the routine. And suddenly we forget that God is there before us and with us. And, you know, we get back into the world. There was a song, the Hillsong wrote, um, or somebody from Hillsong wrote some years ago, called Believe. And the, the opening line of the song was, uh, I say on Sunday how much I want revival. But then on Monday, I can't even find my Bible. You know, is that true for us sometimes? You know, God said to Israel, you know, or they were being challenged, you know, how have we wearied God? Well, the answer is because you've professed something as you're there before God. Lord, I'm going to serve you. This week, I am yours. I won't walk away. I won't look at things that pull my heart from you. You know, I won't get involved in conversations that wind me up. I won't allow bitterness or anger or resentment. You know, and then suddenly we find ourselves back to where we were. They were calling evil good. Well, we wouldn't do that, would we? <laughs> well, certainly we see our culture doing exactly that. But you see, they'd started to call the things that were good, evil, and vice versa. And the evil things had become so much part of their lives, they didn't see anything wrong with it. But what about us? You know, how often do we justify the things that maybe we would watch on telly? Oh, it's not that bad because. And we start to justify those things. You know, or whatever else it is. And we start to call evil things good. We try and put a label on it so that we don't feel so offended. Our conscience actually becomes seared. Because we allow these things. <clears throat> so, just a few more of these. We see, you say, how shall we return to the Lord? And they'd become so absorbed in the world that they'd forgotten their way home. And even worse, they'd actually made this world their home. Then they asked God, how have we robbed you? In chapter 3, verse 8. And God says, in tithes and offerings. You know, that which should have been given over and consecrated to the Lord. Now, of course, there is an element, and this is often quoted in regard to giving. And yes, it's right and appropriate that Christians do tithe. 
we're not under the law, absolutely not. But it's right and proper that we give for the work of ministry. We see it every, uh, amplified and echoed in the New Testament. There's nothing wrong with giving. It's very right and proper and appropriate that we give for the work of the Lord, for the ministry the Lord has called us to. It's the building of the Lord's house again that we were talking about in Haggai. But it's not just money. And so often people get so caught up with this money thing. You know, it's giving of everything that we are. You know, it's not that we should give God 10%. We should give God 100%. Everything we have, everything we are. Paul says in Corinthians that we have been bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are the Lord's. That's the way we should be as Christians. You know, there's no, how much should I tithe? The answer to that is everything. Give everything to God. You know, don't go out and buy anything unless you know that it's going to be for God's glory, for God's honour. You know, if we have that approach in our lives, that the money we spend, we spend because we know it's going to be honouring to God. It's not a problem to go and buy clothes. It's not a problem to buy things for our homes. It's not a problem to have nice gardens. But make sure we do those things in such a way that we bring glory to God through everything we do. God says again, you say, what have we said about God? Well, this was again, they were being arrogant. They presumed to speak about God, thinking that they knew him. And then they go on and really say, well, it's vain to serve God in chapter 314. You know, this is another one of these things that I get on a bit of a high horse about. This whole, uh, you need to be sensible. God doesn't expect you to do that because, well, you'll wear yourself out or, you know, look we've got to be realistic about this god doesn't want us to be foolish but we are to be fools for christ we're to give everything for him and sometimes we use the whole you know idea of you know it's vain to serve god you know you shouldn't do that because it's too much and you know no let's give everything to god god will sustain god will support you know back in psalms we read some trust in horses and chariots but we will trust in the name of the lord our god that's the way it should be we know we let God lead and direct our paths. You know, so <clears throat> the brief overview then, that's just the, those you says and then God responds. Uh, God challenges the nation on those things. A brief summary of the book, very simply, introduction is the first verse of the first chapter. Then from verse 2 through 5, we see God's unchanging love for his own. Then we see the total failure of the priests. Those that should have had knowledge, should have preserved knowledge, they let the people down, they let God down. <laughs> Not dissimilar to the priests today, those that serve, supposedly serve God, those with the dog collars, may I say. And that's not to point at any particular domina- denomination, but the, the public face of religion has been a, just a total, um, well, it's a total disappointment in terms of the standard, the, the way that it should be representing God, the King of Kings. And then chapter 2, verse 10 through 16, their failure to value covenants and their covenant with God is symbolized primarily here as the covenant of marriage. And marriage is very important. God makes it clear that he hates divorce. And he uses that as an example in the book of Malachi because they were marrying into uh, wrong relationships with people from other lands that would have pulled their hearts away from God. And then finally, chapter 2, 17 and to verse chapter 3 verse 6 we read of the messiah's coming in judgment and then from 3 chapter 3 7 to 18 israel's sin and future restoration and finally the coming mission of elijah well malachi 3 verse 10 we read bring you all the tithes into the storehouse 
that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, says the Lord of hosts. God is challenging us. And again, this is about tithing, but not just money. This is about our lives, giving everything to him. God says, prove me, try me. If I will not open to you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Do we have that kind of faith to abandon all to God, not counting the costs? In chapter 4, verse 5, God makes his promise. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. The promise that Elijah is coming. Of course, John the Baptist comes at the beginning of the New Testament, which is where we'll pick up next week. And Elijah is this forerunner of John the Baptist, and Jesus makes that connection. But Elijah himself will also return. Uh, In the book of Revelation, we'll see that Elijah seems to be one of the two prophets, two witnesses um, that God will allow to speak uh, at that time. But the Old Testament ends with a curse. Lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. The New Testament ends with this great blessing that's pronounced at the end of the book of Revelation. A real contrast. So we see with the Old Testament, it ends with unexplained ceremonies, unachieved purposes, unappeased longings, and unfulfilled prophecies. Jesus said, Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. As we've been going through, looking at the Old Testament, looking at these books, Every one of these books points to Jesus. Just a quick brief summary of some of the books that we've gone through and studied. The book of Esther, well, the theme is Jesus Christ portrayed as our advocate. In the book of Job, Jesus Christ is portrayed there as our redeemer. In Psalms, he's portrayed as our all in all. In Proverbs, Jesus is portrayed as our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, Jesus is portrayed as the end of all living. In other words, the purpose of everything, the reason for life. In the Song of Solomon, Jesus is portrayed there as the lover of our souls. Isaiah, he's portrayed as the Messiah. Jeremiah and Lamentations, both written by Jeremiah, Jesus is portrayed as the righteous branch. In Ezekiel, Jesus is portrayed as the Son of Man. In Daniel, as the smiting stone. In Hosea, as the healer of the backslider. In Joel, as the restorer. In Amos, Jesus is portrayed as the heavenly husbandman. In Obadiah, Jesus is portrayed as our saviour. In Jonah, Jesus is portrayed as our resurrection and life. In Micah, he's portrayed as a witness against a rebellious nation. In Nahum, he's a stronghold in the day of trouble. In Habakkuk, Jesus is portrayed as the God of our salvation. In Zephaniah, Jesus is portrayed as a jealous Lord. In Haggai, Jesus there is portrayed as the desire of all nations. Zechariah, He's portrayed there also as the righteous branch. And then in Malachi, Jesus is portrayed as the son of righteousness. That's taken from what the Bible is all about by Henrietta C. Mears, a great book. But the point is, every book of the Old Testament points to the Messiah. The one who in the Old Testament is veiled, but in the New Testament is unveiled and revealed. And next week, as we pick up our study in the New Testament will come face to face with our Messiah, the King of Kings. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this incredible book that you've given us. We thank you for these prophets that speak not just about their own days, 
but with this incredible clarity about the times in which we live. We see the situation in the Middle East, and Lord, we do, as your word says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem this evening. Father, we pray for every day for that nation, that you keep them, that you sustain them, and even though they will go through these troubles ahead of them, that, Lord, you watch over them. Father, we thank you again for the blessings that you have poured upon us. And, Father, we just ask that by your grace you help us Lord, to consider our ways and to choose you in everything. Lord, to see the windows of heaven open and these blessings poured out because we live lives totally yielded to you. Lord, we just thank you for your word. Thank you for the things you're teaching us. And we pray you continue to let us grow in knowledge and grace. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.